Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today we have on the program Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University. Dr. Lindsay is here to discuss her pathbreaking book published in 2017 by our friends at the University of Illinois Press entitled Color No More, Reinventing Black Womanhood in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lindsay. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm very excited about this conversation. I'm excited as well. Um, this is definitely a pleasure to have you on the program. It's uh, It's been a long time coming, shall we say. Um, and so uh, before we get into uh, the, the, the nuts and bolts of Color No More, can you give us a brief story of how you came to this project? Sure. Well, I'm a D.C. girl. I'm originally from Chocolate City when it was still chocolate. And I would see names around the city on different things, whether it was an elementary school, a kind of small street or an alley. I would just continue to see names like Anna Julia Cooper, Mary Church Terrell, Lucy Diggs Slow. But I was not learning about any of these women in elementary, middle, or high school. I felt like I was seeing these names and I knew they were Black women, but I did not really know their stories. So when I got to college and I attended Oberlin College, these names came up again. And some of the women were in the archives at Oberlin because a good number of the women, the Black women that I look at in Colored No More actually attended Oberlin as Oberlin was an open admissions policy pretty much from its opening. So Black women getting bachelor's degrees and pursuing college education in the 19th century have a very particular relationship to Oberlin College. So once again, I felt like I was moving in these footsteps, but still hadn't fully filled them out and got an understanding of just how important these women were. So once I got to Duke for my graduate program, in history, I became even more invested in picking a topic that I could really sink my teeth into and be grounded in for the next several years. As we both know, pursuing dissertation research and writing is almost an endurance project. And so you have to be very passionate Mm -hmm. about what it is you're pursuing, what it is you're exploring, what questions you're going to ask in an historical context of the archive primarily. And these women were recurring. And I was like, I still don't know as much about these women as I should. And I still don't know how DC by and large became the first major majority black city in the United States. And I have a feeling as I just made the hypothesis that black women had something to do with this, um, to reshape the city, to make this a city that was dynamically shift by the presence of peoples of African descent. And so I began doing work around creating a history, not a exhaustive and exhaustive history, but a comprehensive history of Black women moving to Washington, living in Washington in the early Jim Crow era. And I thought it was really important to look at these different vignettes of these women 
and their lives to see how by 1957 we get Chocolate City as it's known and the important role that Black women played in shaping the city in that way. And so as well with that, uh, can you give us a brief description of some of the characters um, involved in, in this project as well? Sure. I mainly focused on a kind of a handful of women, but also the larger community of Black women that existed in Washington, D.C. And, and although the book itself has somewhat of a kind of middle class and elite um kind of posturing in terms of the women that I'm looking at, it was also important to me to see how women as a collective group, African-American women in Washington as a collective group were shaping the city. So there is this kind of collective biography feel in spaces like the beauty chapter where we're looking at ads of beauty uh, products such as hair straightening, skin bleaching, hair improvement, hair growth that are speaking to Black women across class lines in Washington. But then you have a chapter like Climbing the Hilltop, which focuses mainly on Lucy Dixlow, the first um, woman dean at Howard University, um, and her journey at Howard, her experiences at Howard as Black women as she's trying to create a very distinct kind of Black women's institutional culture up against a very progressive and dynamic uh, institution that had very retrograde ideas about gender and women's place in the rule. And I, I want to be fair that these retrograde ideas were were shared by many of their contemporaries and many institutions. So Howard was not singular in that. I'm also looking at Black women who were involved in the suffrage movement, which include uh, women like Mary Church Terrell, uh, women who, although were not Washington-based, but were often in Washington doing this work, someone like an Ida B. Wells. And finally, in the uh, penultimate chapter on the S Street Salon, which is a chapter about African-American women playwrights and poets who were writing in, in community uh, in the 1900s and largely the 1920s. Uh, that was held at the home of writer Georgia Douglas Johnson. And so highlighting this community of women was really important to me because I, although we know the works of their women from African-American literary scholars like Kathy, um, excuse me, like Coretha Mitchell and scholars like Kathy Perkins, I thought it was important to actually give a place to this and to really anchor Washington as a center, an African-American intellectual and artistic capital at this juncture in history. And and that's also important because um there's a lot going on obviously in the in the 1920s and 1930s that became uh known as the Harlem Renaissance um and and I noticed an intervention um that you make regarding that in, in Washington's place. Can you speak a bit about that um if you may? Sure. So it was important to me to both challenge how we thought about the New Negro movement and to not fully decenter Harlem in the conversation, but to see what else is happening in Black America, in Black spaces across the country. And I, and I noticed something very intriguing when I was looking at how we frame what we term the New Negro movement or the Harlem Renaissance and where we saw what we consider the primary activity of this period happening, that a lot of this was based on some masculinist premises, that this was a post-war moment. So in that sense, the war is very much so I tied to ideas of African-American manhood and this confrontation with fighting for democracy abroad, but being left out of democracy in your home country. 
And while I think that's a really important element of this new Negro, I noticed in the writings of Black women from as far back as the late 19th century talking about newness and modern. And a part of that was about this blending of the new woman and the emergent emancipated Negro. And I think Black women were in many ways, a precursors to what we think of as this kind of era of people who were committed to this artistic, political, creative, uh, social renaissance that all shape what we know as the Harlem Renaissance. And a lot of that was happening in D.C. It's also because D.C. is a space where migration to Washington happened in droves a lot earlier than we think about the Great Migration, which is also a very compelling and substantive factor in the Harlem Renaissance, that people were moving to New York. A lot of the migration to D.C., especially for Black women, happens between 1860 and 1910. And so there's already institutions that are established there, longstanding Black institutions that exist in Washington, even pre-1860, that make it a unique space for building an intellectual and cultural center. And I think it also makes a distinct space for Black women to be part of that artistic and intellectual community. And I, and it's important for me not to challenge or to say the Harlem Renaissance is a thing, stop thinking about it in that way, but to think about these parallel precursor, predecessor moments as equally important in terms of shaping the discourse of the new Negro. So I was inspired by work of scholars such as DeVarian Baldwin, who was looking at Chicago during this period, people like Aaron Chapman, who were also challenging the ways that we thought about the new Negro as a masculine figure and uh, a, a notion or an ethos that was intimately tied to ideas about Black masculinity and democracy. So it's a blending of shaping reshaping the temporal framing, the geographical framing, as well as the core thematics and principles and political impetuses of the New Negro movement. And and there's there's there's, there's so much that that occurs, right, when when you look at this particular period, right? It was I'm thinking of like the work of like a Chad Williams when it comes to like Du Bois and such in this period in in the post uh in the World War One era, but then you have like the building into, like you said, with the New Negro movement and, and the and, and Locke's work, and and I think this is really. I I thought that you know your 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 book was so, I would say, inventive in so many ways, and we'll get to those over the course of of this interview. Um, but what, one thing that I thought that was uh very very Ooh, was learning about someone like Lucy Diggs uh, a slow because um, I'm interviewing um, uh, Gary Dorian who who wrote this book on um, uh, on the Black Social Gospel and how folks like Mordecai Johnson um, were you know folks who helped to inaugurate that tradition in the 20th century and bring about King um, and so. I I didn't really know as much as you know. I'm I'm a fam you guys, so you know I won't really talk about Howard that much. You feel me? Like you know, we part of the Miac. I know they got Cam Newton's brother, but you know that's really about it. You know, and they got homecoming, but um, but you know, besides that, I don't really know too much, right? Uh, besides uh, the actual Howard guy, um, but learning about um Lucy Day's slow is it it made me think about um why don't I know her name? 
right? I I, I, I go back to Brittany Cooper's work with you know your one of your one of your uh, one of your uh, friends, if I'm not mistaken, um, at least based upon the acknowledgments, I think. Um, and so when I think about her work with Beyond Respectability through the same press. And I think about her talk about how she went to Howard and she didn't even know about a lot of the uh, phenomenal uh, black women who, who went through Howard. And I think about similar things with uh, Lucy Diggs uh, slow as well. So could you tell us about some of the things that she some of the obstacles that she faced while she was trying to mold um, uh, Howard University's uh, uh, black women? on campus? Sure. I mean, Flo is one of the most compelling figures I had the opportunity to study. And I was so excited to find her story. And I I first encountered her in an article, an amazing article by Linda Perkins that was really dissecting her as this kind of groundbreaking dean. And that was battling against sexism at this prestigious institution that meant so much in Black communities. Uh, She was an alum of Howard as well. So to come back to the school where you were a student and heralded as this amazing student, this accomplished both tennis player, you were part of the chorus, you were president of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, you were all of these things while you're coming here. And then you want to come back and shift the institutional culture and the ways that it handles its Black women students. I mean, that's brave in and of itself and dynamic in and of itself. And as I looked for more information about her after reading that article, I was stunned that at the time there was so little work about her, about her life beyond that moment, before that moment, and of the kind of trajectory and some of the battles that she intimately faced at Howard University. And thankfully now there is a full biography that folks can read of her, so I'm very happy about that. But she comes to Howard. She, as I said before, she's the first dean of women, and she was very clear about negotiating her salary and advocating for her salary being closer to her male peers with similar qualifications, a battle we as women of all races, but particularly Black and Latina and Indigenous women continue to fight uh, to be compensated at the same rate as our peers. And also then her role not be matronly. She was like, I'm not going to be a chaperone. First of all, that is premised upon women needing a chaperone and women's moral behavior as being more indicative of something about their aptitude than their male counterparts, but also because I'm here to shape these women to prepare them, as she said in her own words, for the modern world. Now, you had an administration that was not always amenable and at many times actually adversarial to this work, particularly when Howard hires its first Black male president, um, Mordecai Johnson, who's pretty conservative, uh, Baptist minister, Morehouse man, Um, and he comes in and he's like, women have a place in the world. It's cute that y'all are going to be educated here, but here's what this is going to look like. And she fought to the nail against sexual harassment by faculty of, of students. She fought for black women students taking a variety of majors, uh, for black women students to think about their lives beyond marriage and being adjuncts of men. She fought for a women's campus to get women on campus Uh, as opposed to off campus and then just coming in for classes to really create an institutional culture for them. And in addition to that, 
she was pushed by the administration because she shared her life with a woman named Mary Burrell, who was a talented writer in her own right and part of this new Negro writing class that existed in Washington. And they shared their lives together. And this, of course, ruffled the feathers of many in Washington, but it was also very well known. They were part of a community of folks who lived their lives honestly. Um, and 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 despite obvious questions of kind of safety and homophobia that absolutely existed in the 1920s and 30s, it's important to acknowledge that there were this was this community of same gender loving black folks in DC at this point, and that upon Lucy Slow's death, Lucy Dick Slow's death, the creme de la creme of Black America were sending notes of condolences to. Mary Burrill. And so you combine challenging the status quo of an institution, challenging the sexism of an institution and sexual harassment as an institution and challenging sexual and gender norms of the United States more broadly, but specifically at this institution. And you've got someone who's pioneering some things, right? Mm -hmm. You've got someone Mm -hmm. who is challenging at every level, her personal life, her professional life, and primarily for the betterment of Black women being prepared to be not just independent, but have the aptitude and the, the human to move through the world that was being made and remade in the 20th century. And, and that chapter was a, a tremendous way to introduce um your particular book as well. Um, and, and before we get any further, I, I can't believe I actually forgot to even ask you this. Can you describe, you know, you say colored no more on the first part of the title. Can you describe that particular, um, uh, can you describe that particular aesthetic? Um, and also in how, because in chapter two, you also talk about uh, new Negro uh, womanhood as well, um, if I'm not mistaken. And so could you talk about kind of like the beauty aesthetics um, that that really uh, are throughout your particular book too? Right. So the title actually derives from, I remember seeing when I was doing the beauty chapter, I was looking at all of these advertisements that were in Black publications that were targeting specifically Black women. And you found a lot that were about hair straightening and skin bleaching and, I, and it really stuck with me that this was such an important part of this mass market that's created around beauty for Black women that obviously has lasting effects on the way that we uh, see the beauty industry today, the way that people think about beauty and what's beautiful uh, today, and that this industry also helped to create an artisan class of Black women. And one of the products that I saw was Black No More. (laughs) And I was really intrigued by that name. And I was really intrigued with the idea that these women were looking at beauty culture, looking at political rights, looking at creative expression, looking at educational attainment as ways to move to another space in this kind of emancipatory 
uh, frame of mind, that what it meant to be post-emancipation, post-reconstruction Black women. And a lot of these women were pushing beyond the construct of Jim Crow of the colored citizen, that they were attempting to do this in a number of ways. Beauty aesthetics is one of those ways. So although Black No More obviously is deeply problematic and anchored in kind of white supremacist notions of beauty, I thought there was something really interesting about the reappropriation of that in terms of colored to demarcate how Jim Crow divided out white folks from um, African-Americans, people of African descent in the United States. And these women were seeking ways to reinvent Black womanhood in ways that were authorial, autonomous, and expansive. And beauty culture was one of those ways. We tend to think as feminist scholars that beauty is this frivolous industry that is about money and it is about telling you all the ways that you don't fit into the world and here are the things you need to change. Well, I think it's far more complicated for marginalized folks, for folks who don't fit into that norm to begin with, to any norms to begin with, to think about what beauty culture afforded Black women as entrepreneurs, what it afforded them in terms of aesthetic discourses about what it meant to be free, and what it meant for Black women to wrestle with the internalization of particular ideas of anti that were rooted in anti-Blackness and what we would now call massage noir, and also creating an alternative to that, which means these women who are creating local businesses and local operations that focus on other kinds of hair techniques that aren't about straightening or mimicking necessarily uh, white beauty norms. And even women straightening their hair in this era weren't necessarily mimicking white beauty norms either. There were hairstyles that were super in vogue for Black women specifically that you extended and lengthened to hair to create. And I think putting beauty in conversation with women also fighting for suffrage meant to me seeing the wholeness of Black women in this era, not to say that they were only political or only writers or only students. It was important to see them as women thinking about their bodies and their bodily autonomy in specific ways as a way to reimagine freedom and to reinvent themselves and the collective ideas about Black womanhood. And as well, I I thought that the chapter was really uh, intriguing because, you know, um, my my faculty mentor here at the University of Delaware is uh, Tiffany Gill, and 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 um, and I know that her her work along with uh, uh, the, another scholar at, at UD, uh, Tanisha Ford, you know, our our work that you know definitely when I when I was reading your book, it, it's so wild. I haven't had this happen all the time, but um, every now and again I'll read a book and I will literally see the conversation that is actually going on. Like, I feel like I'm in a beauty shop or something like that, where like the actual conversation like folks are having and you're like able to like see it happen and kind of feel it. So it was like a, like a super duper surreal uh, experience, like reading your book and, and, and specifically knowing it. this is kind of how I know that I'm, you know, reading a, a widely now um, as a PhD student in, in, in that sense. And so I thought that that was a real uh, intriguing space too. Um, because I think that uh, the new Negro movement, as as you mentioned before, um, I think the aesthetic that most people have is not one; um, is primarily one of a masculinist conception, um, which obviously is not true. And and your book pushes against that in in so many so many ways. Um, also, too, um, can you talk to us a bit about um, because in, in your third chapter you talk about um, Black women's suffrage activism in Washington, D.C. And and 
let's shall we say that there are some happenings going on in in the nation's capital for 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 women's suffrage uh, for black women's suffrage so can you talk about the story of some of of your historical actresses in in that way sure so the suffrage chapter was really intriguing for me because it was the one i was actually just to be honest as an author and as a scholar the most uncertain about because i felt like it was the most done in terms of what we had excavated. Um, the work of people like um, Rosalind Turbork Penn and Deborah Gray White and other Black women's historians had really talked about suffrage in such distinct ways and really highlighted some of those tensions that I do elucidate in my chapter, but it focused in on suffrage and African-American women struggling and fighting for the vote at length. And so I was like, what am I adding to this conversation? I knew in my dissertation stage that I thought what I was trying to do is cover these different ways and suffrage was recurring as a theme as women were talking about their lives. And so I wanted to honor how these women spoke about their political standpoints, their political beliefs and perspectives. That was important for me to honor that, even if it is something that we've read, it was important to put their full humanity in a context and in the narrative. But when I went to write the book and I and revised that chapter, I wanted to hone in on a particular moment that I thought really enlivened the tensions that enlivened the conversation around what suffrage would mean for Black women and to also highlight the unique space Black women in D.C. would hold in this given D.C.'s unique position within the United States in terms of voting rights and representation. And so the Black women who are coming to D.C. for the march that I focused on in 1913 are claiming space in a space that is very antagonistic to them for the most part. It's antagonistic from the crowds that surround the parade in general who are anti-universal suffrage. It's anti from many of the white women who are the head of planning um, (laughs) this movement. And they're also even facing some backlash from Black men, although in this instance, not nearly as much as from white women at this march. And so you have Black women deciding to be a part of this march, but also deciding to opt out of the kind of performative and theatrical dynamics that white women protesting were doing, recognizing that this could not be their strategy, right? That it's, it, it becomes a clear moment of, understanding this trajectory of different iterations and different ideas about feminism and how to think about an anti-racist feminism and the kind of histories of both white liberal feminism and black feminism here in this moment that you get to see an early iteration of some of those conversations, dynamics, and uh, complexities. And so you're looking at the writing of Mary Church Terrell in Washington papers about suffrage and the case for suffrage for black women. You see the members of Delta Sigma Theta sorority having their first public act at this march with their banner. They had just been established two months before this, and that is their first public act to be a part of this. And of course, they are, it's a contentious act, right? It's a protest act um, that they're part of as far as that because they're going against what had been planned and what had been designated and given the go by the organizers of the march. So it both to me exemplified longstanding tensions among Black and white women regarding all kinds of political issues, specifically suffrage. And it also animated the daring to take up space, which I think is a important element and component of Black feminist activism and, 
and African-American women's activism more broadly, that taking up space, demanding space, claiming space, um, despite real threats to your body, and to understand that taking up space for you means something very particular. So aesthetics, this is why it comes after the beauty chapter, because aesthetics and performance were so important to the ways that Black women showed up as this. So aesthetics and performance have a large way in which white women's activism was read in this era around suffrage because it's so theatrical and over the top. For Black women, it was your, you know, quote unquote, Sunday best mm-hmm. that you're coming in to perform ladyhood, to perform this and understanding that it is a performative strategy that it does not necessarily dictate or author your womanhood as a whole, but that you revealing this particular performance of ladyhood to claim space in a hostile environment. And so that was significant to me to be able to use a, a kind of singular march to highlight all of these tensions, the aesthetic distinctions, the political differences, the political alliances, the audacity of Black women in the most affirming way. And I thought that could be my distinct intervention on this very well-excavated and well-mined conversation. You mentioned earlier Tiffany Gill and uh, Tanisha Ford, who absolutely I feel my book in conversation with, my work more broadly in conversation with, but that is what Black feminist scholarship is at best. work that is always in conversation with one another, that is rooted in a deep citational practice and that builds on each other and grows from each other. It leaves questions for the next Black feminist scholar to pick up and to run with and to go back and be in these beautiful spaces of collaboration um, with one another. And so I had hoped that my book was in collaboration with, in conversation with existing work on suffrage, this chapter specifically, but also provided a new point of entry for questions regarding, well, how do we think about aesthetics and African-American women's activism in this era and eras before and after? And I think that the chapter um, resonates with me on that frequency. And, and, Speaking about uh, speak having work speak to you, your final chapter, I am not going to lie, I was up late and I was just like, oh my gosh, this joint right here though, this joint right here is fire. So like your your fourth chapter, you, you talk about um, African-American women playwrights, right? And so as someone who just read and is about to interview Imani Perry, Dr. Imani Perry for her, um, looking for Lorraine, Lorraine Hansberry, uh, a book (coughs) reading those side by side. Oh my gosh. What an astounding, astounding, uh, chapter. Can you speak to us about why I'm so excited about, you know, having read your particular chapter? (laughs) There's so many different, um, there's so many different areas to talk about in our very, very short amount of time. I know. Sure. Well, I was intrigued again, once again, you come up on stuff, right? So I came up on uh, some really dynamic work um, towards the end of um, my early revisions. Once I just moved from the dissertation and into solidly into the book, I had seen the chapters and right when I was finishing up my dis, uh, Caritha Mitchell's book, uh, Living with Lynching came out, which really looked at this. It was a collection of the plays by Black women about lynching. And 
the politics of that and thinking about literary tropes and all of this. And I was really intrigued by this, really intrigued by uh, the work of Kathy Parkins around this as well. And I was like, I wonder where these women were writing this. What Did this come out of community? Because this seems... Um, not as, I should say, not as coincidental. And there was, of course, some work around that in Kalitha's work, but I wanted to extend that to think about a community of women writers. And I know literary, a new literary salons were an important part of uh, writing culture in this era. And I found, and we found, I should say, because other people had mentioned it, but really dug into this place called the S Street Salon, which was at the home of Georgia Douglas Johnson in the U Street Corridor. And it's this space where Saturday nights, writers, artists from all around, but specifically Black women living in Washington, but all of your faves <clears throat> from the Harlem Renaissance were there at some point, getting mm. taken to the woodshop, right, for their work. And this was the space that really focused on Black women writers and cultivating Black women writers' voices and became a space that not only empowered women to tell their stories and to write um, themselves into the history that they already existed in and to capture major political themes of the day. And that ranged everything from birth control to infanticide to lynching to mothering. I mean, <clears throat> some of the most radical works of writing that come out of this era have roots in this salon. And it also becomes a safe space for um, queer Black women um, in this space too, as writers and expression, a space of love and intimacy that I think is really important to highlight as well. So like many of the spaces Black folks create throughout the diaspora, they serve multiple functions that are both personal and intimate and creative and political and engaged. And the S Street Salon to me was such a rich space, a site in which to kind of unpack all of those different ways that Black women thought about themselves as being voices in the world. And so you had a community of women who were deciding, I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to use plays and poetry to challenge the racial and gender status quo, to challenge white supremacy, to challenge patriarchy, to challenge reproductive injustice. And I think that is fundamentally revolutionary, actually, that Black women created a space like this. Um, I actually just recently saw that the Georgia Douglas mm. home is for sale in Washington, D.C., the historic site. So I am really, I was really excited to write that chapter, not just from the space of looking at the works of these dynamic playwrights and poets and writers, but really for excavating the space and exploring the space that they created um, that was a collective space, that was a collaborative space. And in that ways, it's a proto-Black feminist space that they fostered that was open and inclusive, but also was challenging and politically engaged while still being intimate and loving and deeply rooted in a praxis of care for one another. And, and that's exactly, um, that's the, ex I, I think what you just articulated um, in, in what the, the particular space um, meant, I think that in large ways sounds like what the, the collaboration of uh, uh, black women historians and scholars, right? That's, that really sounds like, what folks obviously have been doing, but are still doing right now in cultivating community. Um, and so that 
that is, I think, always important in trying to cultivate community of care. And um, in light of community of care, I'm looking at the time, and I and I know that uh, you know we got to be timely here. We want to make sure people get to their appointments on time, and so um, <laughs> yeah, so we want to want to take care to that. Um, and so in lieu of that, I won't ask our usual question, which can go for a pretty long time about what you're working on going forward. Um, I guess we'll just have to wait and. You know, uh, uh, as uh, uh, folks say, you know, don't believe me, just watch. And so I guess we're going to be watching Amazon real quick. Yes, I, I'm excited. The work is coming. The next project, I can do a brief one. I'm good at doing a brief one. Um, all, right. all right. All right, cool. We, 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 we'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take sure. it. Sure. The next project is called um, Hear the Screams, Black Woman Violence and the Struggle for Justice. And it is a contemporary historical uh, excavation of violence against Black women and thinking about violence through direct violence, intimate violence, as well as what I'm calling unlivable living and looking at all of the ways Mm. that Black women exist. So everything from maternal morbidity to encounters with police to a Black woman uh, being killed every 21 hours in our communities, um, to think about intercommunal mm. uh, violence and intimate violence, to think about violence specifically targeting Black trans women. Um, so this book looks at that and takes a kind of uh, intimate view of what's behind this violence and how, by looking at violence against Black women, we actually get the clearest picture of the failures of democracy. So it also has some hope in there, if you will, around all of the kind of activism that surrounds us that Black women are are doing. So each chapter has a kind of balance of here's what's happening and here's how Black women in particular are responding to this issue. And so I'm very excited about this. I'm very um, uh, emotionally drained from the project because it is an emotionally Mm. draining topic. And uh, it's far more personal than any of my uh, other work because I'm connecting stories of violence in my own life to tell these stories. So it has more of a storytelling feel with a kind of analysis that allows for the women's uh, experiences, Black women's experiences, once again, to dictate the tenor of the book and to also establish the terms of mobilizing against these failures of democracy. So that is the next project on deck. And Simultaneously working also on a book about the 90s and Black girl, 90s kind of girl uh, book at the 90s. So one is a more, uh, I want to say fun, but one has a, a definite uh, uptick, as my friends say. They want me to start writing about stuff that's a little bit happier. <laughs> than, <laughs> all right, um, all right. So that is where I'm landing. So both of those projects hopefully will be coming soon. Hopefully maybe 2020 is kind of the goal for both of those projects. So yes. All right. All right. 2020 is going to be a big year in the life and the uh, professional and academic lives of uh, Dr. Chiva B. Lindsay, Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University. And she has been on our beautiful program here, New Books in African American Studies, to discuss her New, uh, newly published book, 2017 is still new, uh, published book, Colored No More, Reinventing Black Womanhood in Washington, D.C., by our friends at the University of Illinois Press. And so, Dr. Lindsay, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to speak to me and our listeners today. And um, we really appreciate your time. And uh, once 2020 comes, we'll definitely make sure to ha- uh, to bring you back on the program for hopefully both of your projects. And um, 
Thank you uh, once again. And we will be in contact very soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Alrighty. And once again, I am Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Over and out. <laughs>